Hello and welcome to a brand new series of fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. So yes, I'm back after a longish break and very much back with a bang, given I'm joined for this first episode of Series 2 by, well, a gaming legend. He's also Watford's second most famous fan. It's Miles Jacobson. Miles, how are you? Hello, I'm not bad, thank you. Second most famous. I, we, we actually had this debate recently. I'm, I'm, I kind of think I'm in outside the top five. So we've got... Uh, go Elton, on. Elton John. Yeah, Elton so, John so Elton's one. number one, obviously, yeah. yeah. Chris Stark. Who's that? Chris Stark, Radio 1 DJ. You're more famous than Chris Stark, come on. Jerry Halliwell from the Spice Girls. Yeah, no, she's, she's in the top five, definitely. And then two people who probably aren't Watford fans, but there are photos of them with Watford shirts because of Chris Stark, Jennifer Aniston and Mila Kunis. Well, if they're genuinely Watford fans, I'd put you, I'd put you, <laughs> I'd put you above Kunis um, below Aniston. I'll, but you're definitely I'll, above I'll Chris Stark. That. I mean, with all due respect to Chris Stark, I've, I've literally no idea who that is. Is he really famous? Am I just completely out of the loop with these things, music-wise? You're, you're, you are out, you're out of the loop <laughs> on that one, yeah. Chris, um, Chris is... Pretty well known, I'd say. Okay, well, Chris, if you're listening, a massive apologies. Love to get you on the podcast and talk about Watford. Um, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, Elton is uh, miles and away Watford's most famous fan. I mean, how, how well do you know him? I know you take his seat at Watford, don't you, when he's not there? Um, I used to, yeah. Um, so Elton used to have a row reserved for him and his family, and, and I used to get to sit in that in the director's box. Obviously, times have changed now. Of course, um, yeah. So... I, I can't say that I know Elton well. I've had um, two conversations with him in my life, and one of those was about wingers in the 80s and how great it would be um, to come back on that. But when, when Elton comes uh, comes to games, it's pretty much locked down. The area is locked down because yeah, there's extra yeah. security there and stuff, which um, which you can totally uh, totally expect. So I'm I'm lucky to enough. Uh, lucky enough to have met him a couple of times and beyond that just like everybody else I, lo- I like his music um and uh particularly tommy which i thought was fantastic his, his performance in that um uh but yeah you know he's he was a huge influence growing up although less so than graham taylor um yeah. graham taylor for me still is the person that embodies or embodied Watford Football Club and what we stand for. And I was very, very lucky that I got to know Graham um, in his last few years. Yeah, we'll talk We'll talk about Graham Taylor. Obviously, huge, huge uh, figure for Watford, arguably Watford's greatest figure. Um, it's probably indisputable, in fact. Um, before we do that, we've got to talk about Football Manager, obviously. Um, people won't be able to see this, but you're sitting in front of a lovely Football Manager backdrop. Um, it is what you're best known for, and rightly so, given how brilliant and important and influential it's been over sort of 30 years or so. Um, FM21 came out, I think, last November. Um, so how, how's the feedback been? And also, I'm curious, in lockdown, have you got a sense from maybe tweets you've received or messages generally that it's become even more important for people this year, older as well as, well as the new version, because it's something for people to do? And um i just make just it just provides happiness during what is a really sort of unsettling and sad and difficult time i think you know what we try to do with football manager is is give people an escape from yeah. the real world mm. and you know when we see the play times that we had on fm20 um that it's incredibly clear that that is the case and, and fm21 again um 
you know, we, the, the team have been incredibly lucky um, during lockdown because our work didn't stop. Our sales didn't stop. So we've had stuff to take our minds away from, um, from the horrors of the real world at the moment. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's not, it's not a nice place. And, um, you know, we're recording this just after Christmas and I've had a bit of time off around the Christmas period and I've kind of realized how horrible it is out there more than I did when I was working 14, 16, 18 hour days for, for six months to get the game out. But Making games normally is hard. Making games during a pandemic is really, really, really hard. Not having the possibility of um, creatively bouncing off people, yeah, um, which is what we normally do in a cycle. So um, it was a very difficult cycle to get FM Twenty One out. Delighted that we uh, delighted that we managed to. We released the best game that we've ever made. That's the feedback that we're getting from people. Excellent. Um, and but one of one of the first things that we did when lockdown hit is I knew straight away that this was going to be difficult for people's mental health because there is a reason that prison is there for people when they've done something bad. All right, it's a punishment. All of us being stuck in home prison when we haven't done anything wrong, was always going to be hard on people's mental health. So we actually gave up our, um, our in-game advertising to mental health charities around oh, the world. Wow. Oh, so we've, we've so far served over 100 million adverts for mental health charities. So our players, if they are in the world and still in, in the world of football manager and they're still struggling, they are literally one button click away from being able to get help because all of those advert, all of those ad hoardings, if you click on them, it takes you to the website. Um, so we've been trying to do things like that as well. We also made the game um, free for people to play for a couple of weeks at the start of lockdown and then literally gave the game away. Um, in, I think it was September, we did that um, via the Epic Games Store um, just to try and give, people something to do and give people particularly people who couldn't afford to play the game because people yeah. people work really hard for their 30 35 quid to go and buy our game and it, it's why the ethos inside the studio is to make the best value for money game on the market that's that's what we're trying to do so that people who go and spend their 35 quid and get the game are getting hundreds of hours of gameplay in their world with their story um so, you know, we know that we've helped people during lockdown. We do get lots of messages um, about it. We get lots of emails as well as as well as tweets. Um, and I'm I'm really proud of that. And it, it certainly kept us it kept us driven as a team um, to deliver FM22. Uh, sorry, FM21, and um, we'll do for FM22 as well, which I'm busily working on the feature set for at the moment so that we can all crack on um, with the development of the game and and, and top FM21 again. Because you know, none of us know how long this is going to go on for. Mm. Uh, if you look at, if you look, if you, if you listen to what the government say and then you actually look at the maths and do a bit of analysis on it, I, I, I fear that... Um, that those of us in the UK, most of us aren't going to be vaccinated until the second half of the year. And 
you know, that, that means that we are still going to have restrictions for longer. Um, so hopefully we can continue to entertain people through that um, and carry on entertaining them for many more, many more years to come and, and provide, provide that escape. Because even when we do come back, there's the double whammy of the post-COVID economic issues mm -hmm. and also the Brexit economic issues yeah. where some industries are going to do really well. Some industries will do really well because of Brexit. Some industries aren't going to do really well because of Brexit. So we kind of, we've got a double whammy, a double whammy coming in there. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's difficult times at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And what you've done, yeah, with the, with the, the mental health charity link with football manager. I mean, that's absolutely brilliant as well. And speaking of football manager, I'm not sure if you remember, but we actually uh, chatted way back in 2013 uh, for a piece I did on football manager for the Guardian. Uh, it was genuinely the most fun I've ever had at work. Uh, I absolutely love speaking to you. We also spoke to comedian Tom Jamieson and the right Ian McIntosh, who I know we both know very well about yeah. the game. And, and he got an incredible response as well. It's probably the first time a Guardian article that I've written hasn't had a load of comments underneath it, slagging off the piece and slagging me off. Um, <laughs> it was loads of people, loads of obviously football manager fans sharing stories about how important the game has been to them. And also what are the best football manager stories for me, which are the levels of addiction that it, it uh, that it sort of stokes in people, that it creates in people. And, and there's so, we, we don't call it addiction inside the studio. So, um, because and we we have to be quite careful on this because I see addiction as a real negative word. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. But we 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 call it compelling. Compelling, yeah. So because addiction is a uh, is something that causes a chemical imbalance in your brain. Our game doesn't do that. Um, our game. The reason our game is compelling is because it allows you to create your own story. And what can be better than that every single every single game is different every single save is different because it's all ai driven mm -hmm. so whilst the game world the day that you boot it up is the same as soon as you hit the continue button it's different and and that's why the game is is compelling there's always something to do the game never never finishes even if the in-betweeners gag is there of you know completed it mate you can you can never you can never finish football manager no, absolutely. Oh, just, no, that's really that's really interesting and a very, very, very important point as well. No, absolutely. It's a compelling game. And there's great stories around. There's very funny stories about things that people do. And, you know, the classic ones are um, doing press conferences in front of the mirror and shaking the, the doorknob before an FA Cup final. I'm just curious, have you got any personal favourites or any sort of unique stories in terms of the way people have played the game? I mean, Ian McIntosh, in the piece I wrote in, for which I interviewed you, he said that he wore a suit and played Abide With Me through Spotify and managing a team in FA Cup, which I love. I mean, have you got any yourself? But those kinds of things, they're now regular things that happen. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we even looked at making a football manager suit once. Oh, really? as oh, excellent. And, and instead made a T-shirt that looked like a suit so that people yeah. could do that themselves <laughs> instead. I think um, I, my, my personal favourite is Jason Manford, is a story that Jason Manford tells about Micah Richards. Well, I was just about to come on to this. This was, the in, this was the, my intro to the story, and it's also one of my favourite football manager stories. Do you want to tell it? It's brilliant, isn't it? So, well, Jason tells it way better than I do. But, um, but yeah, he, so Micah, um, Jason was doing a, an end-of-season dinner or a Christmas dinner at Man City, and he's a big, a big City fan. Um, 
And as he was being introduced to all the players, they like did it in a in a lineup like you do for a for a cup final where you're meeting everyone or, or for, for any match where you're meeting anyone anyone now. And he got to Micah Richards and he was a bit off with Micah Richards and his I think it was his dad that was there. Yeah. And his dad was like, Why were you off with Micah Richards? And Jason thought about it and it's when because he didn't turn up for training a couple of times in Marseille. <laughs> it's things like that where life and um where life and the game blur together. Those those are the things that, that I yeah. always love. I went and did a gig at Manchester City, right, and I met a load of the players and it was well exciting. It was last year, Rabinio and Richard done all this. I met Michael Richards, the defender, and I was a bit rude to him. Okay, I was like, all right, yeah, yeah not bothered. Afterwards, my dad was with me, he went, you're a bit rude there to Michael Richards. I said, yeah, I don't know why. It was only when I got home I realised, on Football Manager, he turned up late for training a couple of times. <laughs> That's bad, isn't it? Oh, I like Billy Big Bollocks, turn up when you are, yeah? We had a, a, Brazilian, a Brazilian fan who travelled to Northern Ireland to go and watch a match because he had been managing that team in Football Manager. Jesus Christ, wow. We, we get people <laughs> buying shirts of clubs with the name of made-up players, what we, what we call new gens, yeah, yeah. that have been the star striker for their team when they've been managing that club. Yeah. And they go and buy a shirt with that person's name on the back of it. It's, um, it's quite incredible how people like to live out those stories and how they become such an important part of their life in the same way that soap operas do for a lot of people or um, celebrity shows do for a lot of people. This is something that people are doing themselves and it's their story. They have ownership of this yeah. story and can do what they want with it and take it to whatever extremes um, to whatever extremes they want to. So, you know, we never we never get tired of hearing them. Um, we get tired of hearing stories about Championship Manager 0102 just because <laughs> it was 20 years ago. We've made a lot of other games since then. Play our new ones, please. Um, but, like there's a, I mean, before we start recording, we were talking about Blur and Oasis because um, you used to work for Blur. And there's almost a Blur and Oasis battle between 97, 98 and 0102, I feel, with Football Manager. They're sort of the two big versions. Have you, have you got that sense from correspondence and messages? You've got? Yeah, but it's the fans that are fighting on that <laughs> yeah, rather yeah, than the fans themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there are that the, the, the dislike between Oasis and Blur was real. Um, <laughs> Whereas CM9798 and CM0102, they love each other. They're brothers, right? They, they, yeah, yeah. they have no problems with each other <laughs> whatsoever. It's just the fans of the different game that fight between them. And, you know, obviously I'm incredibly proud, um, incredibly proud to have worked on both of them um, and to still be working on, working on the games now. Um, but it's very much, it's our back catalogue, you know, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's our past. Um, so what, what we do now is more important uh, or is more important to me, but what's always more important to me is what's coming next. Yeah. I'm, I'm someone who always looks forward. That's what keeps, that's what keeps me driven and determined um, is that I always look forward. So even FM 21 now, that was FM 21 was last year's game. Right, I'm now concentrating. I'm still playing it, but I'm concentrating <laughs> on FM22. How can we make FM21 better? Is always 
it's always the thought process. How can yeah. we make the next one better? Yeah, and actually that's what keeps the game not only relevant, but absolutely brilliant as well, because you guys behind the scenes are always trying to improve it, um, and it's excellent. Yeah, massive part of my life as well. My only my only sort of story is that I once bunked off an A-level English class so I could sign Ibrahim Barr as uh, Arsenal manager. That's as bad as it got for me. But no, I adored it as a <laughs> kid, and sadly don't find the time to play it now, but I know many people do, and yeah, the greatest computer game of all time. Um, put that out there and I'm not going to take any arguments on it but let's talk about the most important part of your life Miles I'm guessing and that's Watford Football Club um is it accurate to say that the reason you're a Watford fan quite simply and fundamentally you're from Watford and you want to support your local team um it is that but yes you know that's that's the simple version of the story I didn't have the family peer pressure that most people Mm. have because my parents hated football yeah um, my mum, my mum at least would take me to games, or she took me to my first few games. But my dad hated football, hated, um, and therefore I I doubt I even kicked a football until I was six. I doubt I knew that football existed until mm. until I was about that age because I'm I'm old, so I grew up in the seventies. And there wasn't wall-to-wall football like there is now. You know, football was something that if you were lucky, there were some highlights once a week. And when there was a live game, it was a real big deal. Um, The the FA Cup final was incredibly special in those days because the FA Cup final coverage actually started at nine o'clock in the morning. So you would have a TV show called Swap Shop and it would be an FA Cup special. And then they would have one of the quiz shows that was normally on, an FA Cup special of that. And then they'd show the teams leaving the hotel to go to Wembley, followed by how did the teams get there? Because people didn't even know that. Followed by another quiz show, followed by the match, and it just carried on. It was a a very, very special day. Um, So I wasn't introduced to football at an early stage. And when, when I... When I first started going to school, um, I think that's when I realised that if I wasn't into football, I was going to get the crap kicked out of me for the whole of my life. Um, The school that I went to, uh, there were a lot of football fans there. And I was a short bloke that was at quite a posh school that was from a very dodgy part of of Watford, um, uh, who was very musical. And that's that's how I'd ended up at that school and and the other posh school that I went to. Um, and being looked down on by a lot of people um, because of because of the background and not liking football basically meant I was a complete and utter outsider. So yeah. I started kicking a football around and I've, I've always been massively into maths and I've always been massively into statistics as well. Um and starting to read uh, the Watford Observer, which was the free newspaper that came through our door once a week on a Tuesday. And, oh, we've got a local football club and they're in a really low division, but they're the local football club. So when somebody asks me who I support, I'm going to say I support Watford. All right. Interesting. And then I started getting into the statistical side of things. Um, and, you know, oh, so Watford have lost. That means this. So they've won. Mm. That means this. And these players have played. Oh, how many other times has this player played this season? And there, there weren't really stats in those days. You, you found out who scored a goal and that was about yeah. it. 
But I'd started breaking down football in my head, even as a even as a six, seven year old into maths, because um, that's what it is. It's it's yeah. physics and maths. It's angles. Um, so I went to my first game, and, and you know, one of the questions that you asked me in in the setup of this is what was the first game that you went to, and I don't know. I went to a game when Watford were in um, in what's now the third division, so we'd just been promoted. Uh, sorry, what's now League One. We'd just been promoted from Division Four at the time into Division Three. Um, and my birthday present that year <clears throat> uh, was to get to go to a game of football. And my mum took me to the game of football and she sat there with the Evening Standard and did the crossword <laughs> in the Evening Standard and Women's Weekly. Um, and read that and whilst I was sitting there trying to get into the football and my mum was a was a nursery school teacher locally to where we lived and um, in the row behind uh, was the policewoman who looked after the area as well and she leant over and just said to my mum you don't look like you're enjoying this and my mum said no I'm not She, she just went well if you want your son to come with me and my kids that's fine wow and you know, Watford being the family club yeah, and, yeah. and those foundations, my mum was like, hang on, we can get rid of this pain in the ass <laughs> on a Saturday and you're prepared to take him. Um, so I started going to a few games at that point. Um, but the first one that I remember being at, and I remember being at it because I've got the ticket stub for it, was uh, was the Watford v Leighton Orient match. Yeah. it's really interesting what you, that story tell them. it's a lovely story and I mean fair play to your mum taking you despite her uh, obviously disliking uh, a certain severe lack of interest in football well, but I, you, I, went, I went to a ballet with her once so oh, it, was only fair, it was only fair that she'd take me to football absolutely no totally but you, you hear the phrase family club mentioned about a lot of football clubs and I always think it's a slightly vague term I often don't know what it means but that story really taps into what a family club is when the woman sat behind you at a ground taps your mum on the shoulder and says if you don't want to come to this game we'll bring him I mean that is the essence of a family football club isn't it we started we were the first club that had a family terrace and a family enclosure and we started we started going to games um, on the family terrace and the people that I met there between the ages of seven and twelve on the family terrace are still friends now wow so um some of them now work some of them now work at the club um, our comms director at, at Watford Football Club was one of them. Our supporter liaison officer at Watford Football Club, Dave, was one of them. Um, we grew up together on there. Uh, well, we, we met there. We grew up sitting with each other to the point that when Watford went to an all-seater stadium, there was a group of 60 of us who queued up overnight. We took it in shifts so that we could all sit together. And then a few years down the line, when people had started having kids, one group broke away so that the others could start bringing their kids with them. Oh, wow. Um, but one of you, you, you spoke about Elton John earlier. And one of my earliest memories of Elton John um, at the club was Elton John throwing Kinder eggs into the family terrace <laughs> yeah. at, at Easter. 
What a sight that would have been. Bloody hell. <laughs> he was just lobbing them in alongside, alongside Anne Swanson. And those are the kinds of things that the club did for us. It was yeah. a pound for kids to get in. Yeah. So, you know, lots of clubs have quid for have kid for a quid now. Our season tickets were one pound times the amount of matches if you were a kid that was going with an adult. Um, they tried to bring a generation of supporters through because we were we were a tiny club. Yeah. We're still, we're a small club massively batting above our weight. Even now we're in the championship, we're batting above our weight, let alone when we were in the Prem. But, you know, Watford's, it's not, it's not a huge place. It's also incredibly close to Arsenal, Spurs, QPR, Chelsea. So there are bigger clubs to support if you want to. And then you also get your fair share of Liverpool and uh, and and Manchester clubs being supported um, around there because of parents and um, it's also you know there are a lot of there are a lot of immigrants in Watford and I'm I'm first generation English myself my parents were both were both immigrants um, so you know the people people abroad tend to support the bigger clubs yeah. so that's where the family pressure comes in. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm just so lucky that I didn't have that family pressure and was able to support my local club because what a roller coaster ride it's been in the 40 years that I've been going to see them. Well, let's let's start at the very um, bottom of the roller coaster. Yeah, you start at the bottom of the roller coaster, don't you? Um, June 1977. So El- Elton John um, is obviously the, is his chairman at this stage. I mean, he's an honorary, uh, he's an honorary chairman now, isn't he? Honorary, um, yeah, no, he, he, he bought the club. Honorary life then, president, yeah. He, he bought the club, was chairman, and, and Graham Taylor had just joined. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Yeah, exactly. He hired Graham Taylor in, in June uh, 77, and that kick-started an incredible period in the club's history. And we'll come on to all of that, as well as his second spell. But um, I know you, you mentioned it earlier. I mean, Graham Taylor is a hugely important figure in your life. And I think... I think I read this right quote from you that you said you wouldn't be doing the job you're doing now if it wasn't for Graham Taylor. What do you mean by that exactly? If Graham hadn't been at Watford and Graham hadn't pushed the family element at Watford, I would not have got into football or been allowed to get into football in the way that I did. So I couldn't possibly be doing the job that I do now if it wasn't for Graham. What Graham set up and Graham was largely responsible for the family club element at Watford and he was responsible for the style of football that was slagged off by the people that didn't understand it but was absolutely brilliant for um for the Watford fans of playing more of a 4-2-4 than a 4-4-2 um where the midfielders were the people that won the ball and played the ball out to the wings where you had John Barnes on one side and Nigel Callahan on the other side um it was it was just exciting, and, and Graham put all of that in place. Um, Graham was also an incredibly loyal person um, who didn't matter what he achieved; he was still driven to do more. And I've definitely I've definitely learned a lot from him. Um, and even with the way that he used to interact with um, with consumers, to use to use that word, you know, as, as a fan of Watford, I once wrote a letter to the club because I'd saved up all my pocket money at a time and I wasn't a season ticket holder. I'd saved up all my pocket money to be able to go to a game and we lost that game 4-0. And I sent a letter to the club um, saying that 
you know, I'd saved up, t- telling them the story, I'd saved up all my pocket money. And I didn't mind if we lost 4-0, if all the players were trying, but I didn't feel that the players were trying on the pitch. I felt that they gave up. And that's not something that happens in Watford. You know, we, we fight back mm. people for Watford. Three days later, and this is the day before clubs had databases, right? Three days later, I had a phone call in an evening from Graham Taylor at home asking to speak to me. So he'd gone (laughs) out of his way to find out my phone number to ask whether he could read my letter in the dressing room, whether I minded if he used it as a team talk. Wow. For the next match. Now, I've no idea whether he did do that or not. But he took the time to find my phone number or get someone to find my home phone number in the phone directory because the internet didn't exist yeah, yeah. to phone me up to ask my permission. So this is how seriously he is taking my the, this letter that yeah. was written by a child. How old have you been at this time? Do you remember? I don't remember, but it was... I must have been nine or ten, I mean, something that's, like that. That's got to blow your mind. The football your eyes. It it blows my mind more now than <laughs> okay. it did then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then I was a kid, didn't yeah, know anything. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Graham Taylor just called me. Probably thought all managers do that. It's only now, yeah, exactly. You appreciate how incredible that is. Um, and and you know, I I told him I told him that story, and he just went, "Yeah, that's something that I would have done." Yeah. That stuff really mattered to us. We that they they knew that to get the people of that kind of age to be lifelong supporters, they had to treat them as well as they did anybody else. Um, and and so yeah, you know, he's been he's been a massive influence on me. Even even though I'd had like two or three conversations with him, it was reading the interviews with him. Um, that became the influence. And then, as I said, the last couple of years of his life, I got to know him better and the, the amount of stories that he told me and anecdotes that he told me. And um, I've, I learned so much. Um, and, you know, one, one of the things that I really miss about not being at football is not being able to see Rita, um, his, his wife um, and his, his kids really miss not having conversations with them. Um, since since lockdown began because again you hear so many stories about the great man and rita is just as great a woman as as graham was a great man the sound of hitting a football thrilled me now my playing career is over i'm very fortunate i'm a manager and i'd like to remain one it's just simply so i can hear a football being struck i think that i've got qualities as regards coaching. I think that's what I ought to be doing. I don't want to see the ball still. If it's one touch, we play it off one. A lot of managers run before they can walk. I think that the whole business is based on fear anyhow, and therefore if you're having a little bit of a good run and a job comes, get out now whilst you can. And probably that job's the worst possible job that you could go into. I would like to feel that I could be responsible for helping to create a club to be successful, but at the same time as it being successful, set standards that are worthwhile, that are good ones. Hey, hey, come on, get crap in this club! Oh, you've bought one of these books, have you? It was the Watford family, whether you were a player, whether you were one of the ticket staff or whatever. There's it! 
Isn't there stories of him sending players into pubs around Watford to, to buy drinks for fans as well? Oh, this this is absolutely true because I, I was in I was in one of the pubs. So it was it was after um it was after one of the playoff it was either after one of the playoff semi-finals or it was when we just got into the playoffs. Mm. Um and uh, and I was in the pub that I used to go go into after games, um the, the escort. Um and in in comes um in comes Peter Kennedy, who is a left back who just scored. And he walks in and goes, Right, I've been told by the gaffer I have to come in and buy everyone a drink. And we just looked at him and went, No mate, no mate, we're gonna buy you a drink. Um and uh, just sat there with us. But yeah, he made wow. he, he made sure that people were going into all of the local pubs, split them all up, um, just to go in and say thank you. Um, and it's why the players of that, of that era and people like Tommy Mooney, who, you know, I hope Tommy doesn't listen to this because he does Hive Live with me sometimes. But Tommy, <laughs> Tommy wasn't the greatest player that we've ever had, but Tommy had the greatest heart of any player that we ever had. And he's a legend with Watford because of that heart. Paul Robinson, the left back, is a legend at Watford because he used to go behind the goal at corner kicks and start winding the fans up to try and <laughs> make more noise. Excellent. It's, it's those kinds of things that make you feel yeah. really close to those players and, and why, you know, the fans feel very close to Troy Deeney as the talisman of Watford now because, again, he's got that, that passion. He's not just there to earn his money. He's got... He's got the passion and the passion for the club and, and respects the supporters. He doesn't see the supporters as customers. Well, we'll talk about Troy Deeney and Paul Robinson. Uh, well, they'll come up later anyway, because we're going to talk about your all-time Watford 11. They both make it. Just back to Graham Taylor. I'm really curious, when, when he became England manager, and obviously it was a really difficult time for him, how did, you, how did you sort of view that entire time, all the criticism he was getting in the press, and I guess from England sports as well, being a Watford fan who'd, who'd sort of fallen in love with him, essentially, and seen him through his great period? That must have been quite tough in those, in those early years in the 90s. Well, there was one newspaper that were the worst of the bunch that yeah. I, I didn't see because I've boycotted a particular paper for, for many, many, many years. I for think it's the same paper I've, I boycott as well. I believe, for I obvious reasons. Indeed, um, yeah. I felt really sorry for Graham. There was always a, a silver lining, though, that was, well, if England don't want him, we'll have him back at Watford. But because I was a stats nerd, I was also looking at his record and I was arguing on his behalf. If you look at his record as England manager, it's pretty good. Yeah, better, yeah. Than, better than Terry Venable's record as England manager. Is that his win? His overall win percentage, is it? Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he did. He did well, and um, but it, it was also a time where the press, where there was a lot more football about, and where 
national football was still more important than club football, which I personally don't believe it is anymore amongst amongst the majority of football fans. Whereas at that time it was it was the be all and end all um, was international football. Um, you know, Graham would have had the same problems if he'd been managing any any massive club that he had when he was managing England, which is he had a way of working and he wanted it to be that way. And he needed everyone, he needed everyone to be on the bus with him. And managing England, there are certain newspapers and certain journalists who uh, believe in life to build people up to knock them down. And being the England manager is the ultimate for that. If England, if, if England win the World Cup, someone would still find a negative about it and write yeah. about that instead. Um, so it's a poison chalice. And sometimes, sometimes you can't do anything about, about that. So I felt really, really sorry for him. Um, it was one of the first times that a fly on the wall documentary had been done around football. And from what I've seen in football, the stuff that Graham was saying was so intelligent compared to most of the things that you see that happen at football clubs. Um, I, I thought he was really unfairly treated and I felt really sorry, felt really sorry for him. But there was nothing that I could do about it apart wow. from de- defend his honour. And again, it was before the internet. So I couldn't, I couldn't be out there tweeting to people about how unfair it was that he was being treated this way. The newspapers had it in from him from day one. I don't know who they wanted instead, but they didn't want Graham Taylor as England manager. I mean, I've got a lot of sympathy, Graham Taylor. I think I had it at the time. I certainly do now. I mean, you look at the circumstances around the job. England just finished uh, uh, semi-finalists at the World Cup. Uh, so expectations are massively high, but that team's ageing. He needs to turn it around. He needs to get young blood in there. England's pool of talent in the early 90s, I think people forget, wasn't actually very good. And their best player, Gascoigne, was injured. Um so, yeah, I think he was very harsh street. And, and you talked about the documentary, The Impossible Job. If you actually watch that back again, I know, I know it was kind of, I mean, it almost ruined him, I guess. But they actually, if you watch it now, may, maybe with hindsight, he comes across incredibly well in that. I mean, a real gentleman. He does. He does. Yeah. But people picked up on a couple of the comments that he made. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, do, do I not like that? Exactly, yeah. I'm sorry. What's wrong with him saying that? <laughs> he didn't like a decision that was being made. And he oh. said, do I not like that? Nowadays, after every match, people are asking about VAR and the referee. But at the time, Graham's saying that, oh, <laughs> oh, look, he's a turnip. It's like, what? No, it was it was way over the top. And yeah, tabloid journalism at its worst. And obviously, Graham Taylor sadly died in January 2017. Do you remember where you were when you heard the news? I was in a meeting in the office yeah. and um, I got the news. It was sent through to me as a text message and I said we, we were in a design meeting for the next game and I just went look I need to go and make a quick phone call went and made the quick phone call went back inside and said um the meeting's off yeah uh, so everyone can go back and um I I grieved it was just it was it was horrible um and a, a bunch of us I, I ended up on the phone for most of the afternoon with people from the club and um and other friends just exchanging stories and then we got together a, a few days a few days later um i didn't go to i didn't go to his funeral but um but quite a few of my friends did um and and yeah it was it was horrible and and still is you know it was the anniversary 
um, a couple of days ago. And and yeah, I, I, I still feel sad. It, it's like a death in the family. Mm. And it's not really that long ago, is it as well? Three years? No, three years no ago. it's not. A, a lot's happened in those last three years <laughs> yeah, um, in, in the world. But yeah. um, And Graham, Graham would have been screaming at people to wear masks. Um, so it's it's a shame he's not around to be doing that really but um but yeah i i still i still miss him still think about him uh, every time i go to games and uh we always have a a scarf display at watford um for the for the anniversary of his death the first home game afterwards and we're going to have a virtual a virtual scarf display um this this saturday uh for the for the home game against huddersfield with people at home with uh-huh. their scopes, which is going to get broadcast through the club oh that's um, excellent oh it's a really nice touch with that. yeah brilliant well let's talk about his first spell as manager so graham taylor was was at watford the first time he did come back and we'll, we'll touch on that as well he was there for 10 years and by three promotions, took Watford from the fourth division to the to the old first division, the Premier League now. And that first season in, in the first division, 82-83, you finished second, 71 points from 42 games, 11 points off Liverpool to win the league. I mean, that is absolutely remarkable. To put that into some context, that is like West Brom finishing second in the Premier League this season. Um, you're a young man at the time, but were you able to fully get your head around just what an achievement that was? And what I should say also made it remarkable is Taylor didn't even sign any new players that summer going into that season. He put his full trust in to the team that got promoted from the second and, division. And a bunch of the players in that team had gone all the way up from the fourth division. Really? Wow. All the way up there. Yeah. Um, and so, well, some were from the fourth division. Certainly they were a lot from the third division um so you know it was it was very strange getting into europe was incredibly strange <laughs> I can imagine yeah um but we we had a lot of fun along the way we'd had things like beating southampton 7-1 in the cup in the second leg when we were 5-0 down after the first leg um and the commemorative pencils that the club <laughs> For that. That, was the, that that was the merchandise at the time. What a way to mark a huge win, commemorative pencil. It feels, feels very <laughs> 80s, that. I don't know why. <laughs> a commemorative pencil. Not even one of those special pencils with that you, you push down and get more lead. It was just a standard wooden standard pencil, pencil with, it, with it engraved on. Um, you know, we, we've had some incredible years going into it, but um, but we were on this roller coaster and we we weren't at the stage like there there've been some seasons where we've been in in the premier league recently where we've ended up doing quite well that it's like any if we finish 17th it's great and then there was one point that we were top of the league and it's just like as long as we still finish 17th it's great um we were expecting to do pretty well because we had a tactic that no one could work out because there there weren't tactical analysis teams in those days we had a style of playing we had some fantastic players, John Barnes, Luther Blissett. The, I mentioned Nigel Callan earlier. He has to get a mention here again. He was one of those really special players that never got the credit that he deserved. Um, strength in defence, ball-winning midfielders. Um, and, you know, Luther, Luther Blissett um, at the time, was he was a goal-scoring machine. But he needed a lot of chances to score goals. Um, so his nickname amongst amongst my non-Watford supporting school friends was Luther Missit, because 
In, in, in the modern day world of XG, his stats would be terrible, yeah. right? But he got loads of goals because John Barnes and Nigel Callahan were playing these crosses in the, the big striker next to Luther, whether, you know, Ross Jenkins for a lot of that time would be heading the ball down and he'd either yeah. score or he'd miss, but he was getting so many chances because we were doing this weird thing called playing the ball in the air. And people said that it was long ball. It wasn't long ball. Um, long ball is hoofing it straight from the defenders to the strikers. We were playing the ball straight from the defenders and the defensive midfielders to the wings, who were then running past half a dozen people. John Barnes cutting inside, Nigel Callahan down the wing and crossing the ball in. They weren't just lumping it up uh, to the big striker to lump down. Um, so people hadn't seen seen it before and we were obviously the unfashionable team but there were there were some great memories and some great some great moments um that season but then I've got just as many great memories from when we were rubbish than than when we've been good and it's as as a Watford fan um and you're a Liverpool fan aren't you so you I have a date yeah you wouldn't understand this necessarily (laughs) um as a Watford fan, growing up in the period that I did, we didn't expect to win anything. So when we went up, well, hey, this is incredible. Yeah. When we went down, oh, well, we'll try again. It's not yeah. a big deal. Watford Football Club, I think we might, we, we won the fourth division title, I think, or maybe it was the third division title. And beyond that, we've won the Hart Senior Trophy a few times as the, uh, the best team in Hertfordshire. Um, and we've won nothing else. So just just seeing us win was crazy, but go, going on that long run, and then I mean, being in Europe was hilarious. Yeah, well, it's it hilarious. Yeah, that European run. I think was there a game against Slavia Prague? Uh, you played. You yeah. played six Kais- games. Kaiser Kaiser the one that I like to remember because we won that. Yeah, um, six games, then, wasn't it? I think you played. Uh, you played in the UEFA Cup. Yeah, because because it was all it was all two legged. Yeah, so, exactly. yeah, yeah, So yeah. we we got through a couple of rounds and then went out in the third. But this was. This was Watford. <laughs> yeah, it's just just bonkers. And I do think it will happen again. I do think we will play European football again. And it will be just as bonkers <laughs> when, when we do again in the future. You know, even though we've had a blip this year and going down to the championship, our, our current owner, Gino Pozzo, um, working with Scott Duxbury, they saved our club from going under. People do not realise how mm. close we were to dying as a football club. And we've just had five years in the Premier League, and yet we've got a blip. But we'll go back up there, and they'll build. They'll build up again. Um, they've got a great scouting network, and I, I get, I get mildly offended by, um, by the newer generation of Watford fan, who are a lot more expectant than us older fans are, because all they've known is the Championship and the Premier League. They haven't. They haven't known that suffering time. So. Um, so I, I I don't I don't really get where they're coming from because we're Watford we're we're we're, we're a club that I started supporting in the glory years of, the, of of League One compared compared to where we've been for people who've been supporting since the fifties these are these are still the glory years yeah. um, so we just sometimes have to be a little bit more realistic sometimes I think yeah. as football fans. 
Well, we'll come on to the Pozzo, um, Pozzo era uh, in a bit because it, it is an absolutely fascinating era. But to just go back to 80, should say about um, Luther Bliss, yeah, his, his XG or his, his 1980s XG may not have been great. But in 82, 83, he got 27 goals, second top scorer behind Ian Rush. So that's not bad going at all. And the, in 84, of course, he got to the FA Cup final. Now, you talked earlier about how much the FA Cup meant to you as a kid growing up and I'm just old enough to remember when it was a massive deal and, and the build-up would start in the morning and you'd spend all day in front of the telly watching it so I'm guessing that day in 84 against Everton you lost sadly uh, and I do mean sadly being a Liverpool fan um, but it must that must have been huge for you to see what's in FA Cup so, so to show you how much my dad hated football I'd been naughty at school so I wasn't allowed to go you oh that's heartbreaking that is heartbreaking so, I did watch it on the telly. Okay. Um, me being naughty at school was not an unusual thing, <laughs> right? So um, I, I was, I was not, um, I was not happy with school. But he, he did not realise how big a punishment that was. Yeah, that I, I was not, I was not allowed to try and get a ticket for the cup final. Um, so yes, I watched it at home, and it's possibly the last time I've cried, actually. Uh, was then I'm I'm not really a, a crier um, as a as a person, but I definitely cried that day and got into more trouble for crying. You got in well. trouble for crying. I got into trouble for crying. Christ, your your household sounds harsh, Miles. Back in the day, not allowed to go to FA Cup finals, getting told off for crying. Um, me me and my dad's me me and my dad didn't have the best relationship, which is also one of the reasons why um, I respect graham taylor so much because i tried to live the way that graham taylor had taught me to not the way that my um asshole of a dad <laughs> did so it's basically. literally i mean yeah you hear again a phrase you hear often but i mean it really sounds in your case graham taylor's a father figure for you he was a father figure that i didn't know yeah you know people people nowadays with with social media and the, the fandom that comes with it it's a lot easier to get closer to people. So you, you can, you know, you can respect people and be very close to them and have access like you've never had before. Um, I would live, I, I would learn how I should live my life from reading interviews from people that I admired and respected in the same way as Steve Jobs was a big influence to me in many ways, um, early in my career with the drive and passion determination that he had. Although I've heard stories since about how he, um, he wasn't necessarily nice to everybody that he worked with, which, but you know, you look, if, if you don't, if you don't have a father figure that you respect, so I respected my mum massively and learned loads from her. But if you don't have a father figure that you respect, then you have to look from that elsewhere. And you can, you can choose which way you want to go. You know, you can, if, if you, if you want to look up to, um, to a rapper, or if you want to look up to a singer, or you want to look up to an actor or a football manager, you know, whoever you want to look up to, you can, and, and then you learn, you learn from them and learn, learn from their story. And that's, that's way more powerful now than it was then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you're you're absolutely right to say that he he was he was a father figure. He was one of one of the people that I looked up to massively because he did things in the right way. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, talking about two people who did things the right way, uh, I want to go back to Luther Blissett and John Barnes. You mentioned them both, and I'm curious to whether there was 
any appreciation at all or, or how great that appreciation was among Watford fans at that time of the fact that you had two, not only that you had two black players, which is quite rare at that time, but what what role models they were given for the black community, given how good they were. I mean, they were both exceptional footballers, weren't they? So Watford is a very, uh, it's a very diverse place, but it's also a place that the area that I grew up in, which is called Carpenters Park, um, it's, it's bordered. We, we share a station with uh, within a state called South Oxy and South Oxy was a place. And I, I grew up in this place as a Jewish kid who had a scholarship to a private school grew up in a place where they didn't bother taking the National Front graffiti down from the station because it would just go back up again the next day. And my parents were both, um, I, I mentioned earlier, my parents were immigrants. My parents were both from, um, both moved across from South Africa where my mum was an anti-apartheid protester. So, you know, she had to leave, my mum kind of had to leave the country. So for me, John and Luther were just humans that were playing for Watford. Then there were some people who who didn't see them the same way. The people who who were more uh, well, who had any support whatsoever for uh, for the National Front um, as they were then. Whereas I was fighting against that the whole time. You know, as far as I'm concerned, you've got good people, you've got bad people. The other side of things doesn't matter. So I saw them as role models, as footballers rather than role models on the other side, because the way that, that Graham and Elton and everyone else at the club were talking was they didn't make a big deal of it. So it was great that it was inspirational to people that needed that inspiration. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's absolutely fantastic. To me, they were, they were and are exactly the same as any other player that was on there because they're, humans and we're all humans the rest of it just doesn't really matter um but looking back now and seeing what an effect that they had and you know the amount of black players that we had at the club yeah there were those two at that time and then then you had so many others that were coming through and and so many coming through the youth team as well whether that be ashley young um warrell sterling rob thomas and, uh, again it helped it helps steer what Watford is about, which is a family inclusive, doesn't matter what race you are, doesn't matter what religion you are, doesn't matter what country you come from, doesn't matter what sexuality you are, we're just going to treat you all the same because that's how society should be. That's interesting what you say about not making a big deal of it. And I, I feel, I mean, I've spoken to John Barnes a few times and I've been lucky enough to get to know him. And I think, I think I get a sense from speaking to him as well that he wants to underplay his role in breaking down those barriers and changing the view of, of black people through his kind of achievements and talent. And I think I think that sort of frustrates him as well. Like imagine if he's in an environment where he's not seen as being different, that would have really suited him. Because I think I think he finds that burden of kind of the role model burden quite quite sort of exhausting almost. And so if he's in an environment which, which Graham Taylor has created where he's just allowed to be himself, I guess that would have suited him and I'm presuming suit Luther as well. Look, some some people embrace that, and yeah. and others and others don't. We we have a problem in the games industry at the moment that there are not enough um, people at the top of the tree to to look up to, both from BAME communities and females as well. And we're getting much better with it as an industry. And there are some really great people pushing pushing that forward and support coming from everywhere because we are a very inclusive industry. But people do need role models in the same way as I needed Graham Taylor as a role model for me to be able to yeah. deal with 
the fact that I didn't get on with my dad. You know, we all need role models to to look up to, and um, and yeah, I I agree with what you said. I I don't know John, so you know, I just hear interviews with him, and I do think he has um, some issues with it. Luther, Luther doesn't, and Luther Luther is a, a great role model in uh, in many ways on that side of things. Um, as is Troy um, from a rehabilitation perspective. You know, Troy Deeney, it's well known that he um, he got locked up when he was playing for Watford. And and I think I can still get away with this. I think I, th- I still know him well enough to get away with this. But before he went to prison, I knew him and he was a bit of a prick. And when he came out of prison, he was a man. Hmm. Um, and, you know, he got his second chance at Watford. He changed his life. And, you know, I, I love the guy to bits. And I, I hope that people can look up can look up to him in the same way as... They are to Marcus Rashford and Jordan Henderson and the other Premier League footballers who've been doing really good stuff um, over the years. Asmir Begovic is another one who does incredible stuff with his foundation. And, you know, they don't they don't necessarily talk about it a lot. Let's, let's just go back then a little bit, Mark. So Graham Taylor left Watford in 1987 to join Villa, Aston Villa, uh, which sparked a decline at the club. You're relegated back to second division the following year. And you were there as well as the, the third tier for basically the whole of the 90s. Um, you're in your 20s then at this time, if the maths is right. I believe you're going pretty regularly at this stage as well. I mean, what's the period like? You said you sort of embraced the crap times as well as the good times. Were you were you all into the 90s? Were you in, I, I, had, I, had, I had some of my most fun <laughs> times at football during there because we had our little group that was going to home, home and away together. You know, some of my favourite memories are just the situations that we got ourselves into. So during the fuel strike, we had a game at Blackburn. God, that takes me back. The fuel strike, blimey. Jeez, and, I remember that. <laughs> not not many of us got there. Um, but we were, I think we were, at one point we were 3-0 down and we were singing 4-3, we're going to win 4-3. And I think we did end up, we either drew the game or won it. But we were in Blackburn during the fuel strike singing, we've made it We made it up to Blackburn, we don't know if we'll get home, la 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 la. la did la, you get la, up? You must have, oh, that's a tank that's lasted all the way from Watford to Blackburn. Well, what we did is on the way back, all of the supporters that were there, we basically, we all knew each other. So there would be conversations going on, checking that there was a mobile phone in each car that was going back. So there was some switching around of who was traveling with who to make sure that there was a mobile phone in each car because there weren't a lot of phones around in those days. And um, when someone found petrol, the idea was that you would text the next car who would text the next car who would text the next car. And we found petrol in Stoke. Come on, (laughs) So he got we just got text messages going. There's petrol in Stoke. He's got enough for thirty cars. It's like phew, straight there. Everyone just changed their plans and went to Stoke and filled up, filled up at a petrol station in Stoke, and then uh, and then carried on driving. But during during those years, so my my late teens, my late teens, I wasn't there as as much because I was working on Saturdays in a first in a burger place, then in, then in a record shop. When I stopped doing that, I started going to more games home and away. And we were the, the little group that, that sat together. We were the people that started the songs. So we we were the sing-song group at Watford. You're the ultras. We need the Hornet ultras. 
we weren't really we weren't ultras because um it was all about love not about hate uh, as it should um, be as it should be so, you know the steve palmer song which i think was written by i, I think my mate pete came up with the lyrics um, for this was there's only one stevie palmer and he smokes marijuana <laughs> Walking along, smoking a bong, walking in a uh, Palmer Wonderland. It was, it was things like things like that. We had a lot of fun with it. And did Steve Palmer actually smoke marijuana? Uh, not as far as I know. <laughs> I've, I've, I've never asked him. Although he was on University <laughs> Challenge the other week, so really? who knows? You yeah. know, the, the things that go on at university. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't go, so I didn't experience those things. Yeah. Um, so he had a lot of fun, and they they were great years and. The, the result didn't really matter. There was only one time that the result mattered, and that was a Boxing Day game against Fulham, where it was snowing really heavily. It was really, really, really cold. It was snowing. And before the game, and Fulham at the time, the away end didn't have a cover. So we were getting snowed on directly. And I'd, I'd driven there, parked up my car, and it was Boxing Day. So I thought, no parking restrictions, we're all good. Before the game, Barry Hales was warming up in front of us. And I've said, Barry, Fulham were top of the league. You're never going to make it in the Premier League, Hale. He scored a hat-trick. Um, we lost. It, it was either 4 or 5 nil that we lost. And then I went back to my car and I had a parking ticket, oh, which hell. was my first ever parking ticket. So that day, that day, the result mattered. And yeah. the whole day. And basically, I take that as karma for me having a go at Barry Hales. Yeah. It's complete. If any Watford fans are listening to this, I apologise. That game was all my fault. But, but even like when I used to go to away games, <coughs> one of my favourite things to do, of course, would be to compare who has the best pies in, in the division you're going to. And, and that, that was always somewhere like a Grimsby. Although Grimsby, I think it was the fish and chips that I liked. I've done Torquay on a Tuesday night in the Auto Glass Windscreen Trophy. <laughs> I've driven to uh, I've driven to cup games where I've had my car window smashed and had to drive home. You know, someone's broken into the car because they've seen a Watford a Watford badge in there. Yeah. I've driven home without a window. I've I did all of that stuff and enjoyed it. Enjoyed it a hell of a lot. They, they were they were brilliant years. If you go to football, and the only thing that matters is the result, you're going to suffer a lot more than going to football for the experience. Yeah, I mean that's what <laughs> that's what makes me so sad at the moment about not being able to football. I mean, as a Liverpool fan, of course the football is great and watching a team win is great. But honestly, genuinely, the thing I miss most is just getting on a coach with my mates from North London. You know, the crack and having a beer all the way up to Liverpool, getting off, having a pint in the pub, going to the game. Obviously, watching the win is great, but then having a laugh on the way back, whether we win or lose. And, and just the match going thing. We spoke about this before we started recording. I'm just missing it so much. Not me able to go. Live football is the best, isn't it? And, and for me, you know, I, I still still go to, I think I missed two games before lockdown of the Premier League season, home and away. Mm. Um, I tend to get the train to games now. And will work on the train on the way up and I make sure that I get a train that I know no one else is going to be on. So I'll, I'll <laughs> pick the, for a start, I get to the games a bit earlier because for, for away games, I'm spoiled rotten and I tend to be in the director's box for those games. So I have to go up earlier earlier anyway. So I'll, I'll work on the way up wherever I'm going. Then on the way back, 
I know that I'm likely to be with one of the, the Watford directors, a guy called Pro uh, Professor Stuart Timperley, who is a lovely man, and we talk about business. And my friend Fran, Francis Lynn, is normally on the same train, so he'll come and sit with us and have a glass of wine. And there'll be other Watford fans there as well, a lot of whom I know because I've grown up with them. So go and have a chat with them and it will catch up. So I miss all of that stuff yeah. as well as the people that I'm going with because even though they work for the club, they're still they're still friends, right? Mm. Um, they're, they're they're mates and they're my my football buddies. Different bunch of football buddies who I do normally see before the game. The people that I've grown up going to football with um, will often see them, particularly when we go up to Liverpool because um, we've got a particular pub called Doctor Duncan's. Um, that we go to whenever we're playing Liverpool or, or Everton games always treat us so well. The people of Liverpool are incredible. So uh, we always have, we always have fun up there, but you know, I, I again, I'm, I miss that. I miss that so much. And I've been very lucky in some ways in that some of the Watford behind closed doors games I've been able to be at because I might have been doing some, some work for the club we're a club sponsor at Watford, so it is officially work. It's just not the same without supporters no, in totally the ground. 100%, it's, it's, yeah. not, it's, it's not the same just being able to bump into people that I haven't seen for a while. Mm. It's not the same, even though, even though this is part of my life that I don't like, it's not the same not being stopped by someone randomly you've never met before and being asked for a selfie. Yeah. I, don't, I don't like that side of things. But it's nice to be able to make that person's day by saying yes. I, I miss ev I miss everything about it, and and even though I'm spoiled and and get to go to the behind closed doors games, the home ones sometimes, it's just not not the same in any way, shape, or form as it will be when people <clears throat> when people are back in grounds and back able to enjoy football again. No, I totally agree with you. Missing it, missing it deeply. Um, Right, let's go back to the 90s. Uh, right at the end of the 90s, 1999, promoted back to the Premier League via playoff final win against Bolton. Nicky Wright's brilliant overhead kick. And of course, the love, the, well, the lovely thing about getting promoted, of course, but uh, Graham Taylor's the manager that takes you back up in, at, um, in his second spell as manager. I guess that entire experience must have been absolutely incredible. And, and would you have got to Wembley for that game? Would that, would that have been your first time watching Watford at Wembley if you, if you did indeed go? So uh, I was not at Wembley for that game oh. because... But because at that time, Sky used to have a thing called Fan Zone. Yes, I remember that. And Were you doing the Fan I, Zone? I was the Watford and England Fan Zone. Wow! So I was I was doing I was doing Fan Zone that day. I also did Fan Zone for uh, when England beat Germany. Um, I was Fan Zone for that day. The five one, the five one win in Munich. The five one. When, when when the German because Germany went one nil up, yeah, they did, and yeah, the, yeah. the German fan zone commentator was massively giving it large. <laughs> when the second goal went in, I slid across the floor <laughs> of the broom cupboard on my knee, um, which was good fun. So um, <laughs> I I was I met up with everyone afterwards for that game, but I knew as soon as "Right Here, Right Now" by Fatboy Slim was was broadcast, I knew that we'd won. Fatboy Slim was someone that I was working with at the time as, as his A&R on the publishing side. So I was doing, I was making Football Manager on the side as well as as that. As soon as that came on, I knew that we'd won. So when did that come on? 
it came on as the teams were coming out. You know, I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking back now. I might have got some years muddled up here. You were on fire at Wembley. There was one of the playoff finals that we got to that I wasn't at. So you might have been there. I'm old. I'm old. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter. My my brain may be (laughs) failing me, and I'm I'm sure that one of my friends will correct will correct the um in the comment section. But I now I now can't remember whether I was at the game <laughs> or, or whether or whether I was doing fan zone. And that's that is that kids kids, that's what the music industry does to you. Yeah. You were doing Steve, the, you were doing Steve Palmer, weren't you, Miles? There, no, it, it's it was it was definitely the alcohol at that time. Um there are there are certain years that are a bit fuzzy. Yeah. Well whether so. you were there or not, Bolton won uh, sorry, Watford beat Bolton in the nineteen ninety nine player farms. Get back to uh well as the as a premier or premiership, I think it was then, as opposed to the Premier League, and you're up under underground tower, which is great. But let's fast forward now to twenty twelve, because you did speak about this. Uh the Pozzo family coming in and yeah, I, I did want to ask you about this, and I think you've, you've answered the question. I mean, they essentially saved the club, didn't they? You're under severe financial tr- uh, trouble under the ownership of Lawrence Bassini. We, we, were, we, were hours, we were hours away from going to court. Yeah, with the yeah I was going to ask, how serious was it? Uh, well, it was hours away from a winding up order. There had been certain people who worked for the club who'd been fired in a few weeks beforehand, for asking questions about this, who had basically been told by a few of us, just go and wait at home, you're going to be fine. There was a lot of information being passed on to the Pozzos to try and to try and get them to buy the club. There was info from me being passed on to a guy called Luke Warrington, who ended up being a scout at the club, that was then going through to Jean-Luc and Nanny, which was then going through to, you know, the, to to Duxbury and, and Gino, there was a, a, a string of people that were trying trying their best to make this happen because yeah, we were we were so close. So close. And it, it wasn't it wasn't a major thing in the press at the time because it was all being hidden how close we were. Um I was gonna say I didn't really remember at the time. I mean that it really is striking for you to say how close you were because I don't remember that being reported so strongly term. I knew you had issues, but I didn't know you were so close to being wound up. Yeah. Yeah. Bills hadn't been paid. I, I was actually, it, oddly, I was owed money by the club because when we sold the business, Sports Interactive, to Sega, I lent the club some money to buy a player. And I I was the only person who got my money back because I was clever enough to get people's personal phone numbers um, and would phone certain people very late at night until until I got paid back. But the club hadn't been paying people. It's as simple as that. And therefore, therefore, yeah, it was it was straight to a straight to a winding up all the stage, and we were really, really lucky because Mr. Potts and the family could have bought any club that they wanted to. Mm. They were looking at a number of clubs, and they decided that Watford was their best bet. I'm delighted that they did because they they transformed us not just on the pitch but off the pitch as well. If you look at the stadium before they were there compared to what it is now we had a condemned stand 
So the, the journos, the only people that were allowed in the condemned stand were the journalists. Can I just say, I am so aware this. I covered games in that pre-Pozzo era, and, and with all due respect to Watford, a lot of affection for that club. That stand that journalists had to sit in was absolutely horrendous. It was a really, it was a shocking stand. And all the journalists were right down one side. So from yeah. a viewpoint of view, it was horrendous. Yeah, a great view of one goal and zero view of the other. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I remember that stand so well. It wasn't the best. And now Watford is a lovely place to work as a journey so you've got that press box right at the top of the stand it's a beautiful place to work and fantastic stadium and yeah, all the journals get stadium. looked after really yeah, well absolutely you know I, I like the foot long hot dogs that I can get there and <laughs> um, they, they always go down very well so but also the community work that the club have done with things like Hornets at home so when lockdown started Watford were one of the first clubs if not the first club to get ex-players, current players and the managers, whoever the head coach happens to be at the time, to call older supporters just to check that they were okay. Anytime that the club heard that somebody had passed away from COVID, the family got a phone call from somebody who worked at the club, whether it be Troy, whether it be Luther, whether it be Nigel Pearson when he was manager, there was a phone call that went in. Yes, we are a commercial entity, but the, the club... The club look at things in, they still look at things in other ways. So, so, you know, Graham's legacy is still there and has been fully bought into to ensure that families can still have a great day out, that we're doing the right thing for the community. I'm thankful every day for them taking over the club, even even though we went down everything else that's that's gone on, getting rid of some managers that I've really liked as, as humans. Um as, as people, um, even if their football wasn't that great, you know, they've, they've, they've stopped the downward spiral of our football club and they are, they are good. They've been good custodians. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I wanted to, to touch on the community aspects because I think it's really, really fascinating. And, and I've, I've sort of gone through an edu- a Watford education in the last few years, because I think the thing with Watford is from the outside looking in, there's, there is this kind of sense that it's, there's an otherness to Watford. There's, there's some, there's, it's a very confusing, very disparate club. And I mean, that's summed up by the fact there's been, thir- as, as you touched on, 13 different managers in nine years. The ownership st- structure is very unusual. The fact that the Pozzos also own Udinese in Granada. But in 20- they don't own Granada anymore. Oh, OK. I stand corrected. But yeah, the ownership structure is certainly quite unique. And I, and I was guilty of that. I saw, I saw Watford for quite a while under the Pozzos as a very unusual, very strange, very sort of disconnected club to to English football and probably to its own supporters but then I covered a couple of games in 2018 back-to-back games you beat Everton and West Brom and just through that process of getting to you know you do your research into into the team and then start you know uh, you, you just build up a bit of a even over across two games you build up a bit of a connection to the club and I discovered for instance how many players had been there for so long you know Troy, as you mentioned, Troy Dini had been there by that stage for about eight years players like Mariapp had been there for ages, Britos, Prodal and Holibas, you see how people interact at the club, how close they are. And the, and the real key moment for me was, I don't know if you remember this, but you played West Brom in, in 2018 and it was a day where there was loads of snow and the game was going to probably not going to go ahead because of how much snow had been. And Watford asked people to come and help clear the snow from the stand so the game could go ahead. Over 100 people came and everyone who came got a free match ticket and a free bacon roll. And I think it was a 71-year-old woman who came. And I just remember I was at that game. That was the second of the two games I covered in this short space of time. And I just saw that. And I, as I said, I'd done my research and just and really realised how many players had been there at Watford for such a long time. That there was this sort of continuity there and this real link to the community. You know, Watford isn't a club that's lost touch with its heartland at all. And, 
yeah, there's that kind of juxtaposition with the ownership. That might seem unusual, but Watford is still very much that homely club as it was in the 80s under, under Graham Saylor. So Watford have treated head coaches the same as they would a player. And if a player is underperforming, a player gets dropped. Watford do that with head coaches. Yeah. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that I agree with that as a strategy. I'm just saying that's what the strategy is. That there are constants at the club, which are the people who work behind the scenes at the training ground, the medical team, um, the scouting team, although there's been one change there this year, the ground staff, the club secretary. They hold it all together. The head coach... If, if, if at any point Gino and Scott find what they believe is the right head coach, then maybe it lasts a long time. But also, you know, it goes back to the fact that we're a small club. If we have a head coach for more than two years, the model's kind of failed a little bit because either that head coach is so good that someone else is going to come in and take them. As happened with Marco Silva, I guess. As happened with Marco Silva. Yeah. Or they're not good enough which is why no one else has come into yeah, them. that's fair enough now now the club thought that they found the right person with uh, with javi gracia which is why he was given a good a long contract and then that didn't work out but you know the the players that you speak about there you're not even mentioning craig cathcart oh, tom yeah. clever yeah, yeah. yeah you know the the will hughes mm. um christian cabaselli we have players who've been at the club for a number of years who've decided to stay there. The model is that we bring people in and we sell them for a profit or we make sure that they are the lifeblood of the team and the spine, the spine of the team. Because we can't compete with the bigger teams with the amount of supporters that we've got. We can't. Mm. So we have to do things clever financially. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I mean, if, if one thing that's happened in the Pozzo era, uh, well, I, well, I say one thing, two things in a way, is two remarkable games have happened during this period. And I, I'm curious to where they rank in, in the games you've seen. I don't know if you can guess which ones they are. The 3-1 win against Leicester in 2013 and then the FA Cup semi-final win against Wolves in 2019. I mean, two absolutely extraordinary games. Have you got a, have you got a preference? The Leicester game by Country yeah. Mile. I, we, we were sponsors that season and as, as, part of, as part of that sponsorship, I'd been invited to actually go round the pitch at the end of the game if we lost, right? If we didn't get to the playoff final, I was going to be able to do the lap of honour. So I'd been told where to go and stand. Just ask, why um, couldn't you do it so, if you won? Why wouldn't you be able to do it if you won? Because it wouldn't have been a lap of honour if we'd won. Oh, of course. We would have had another game to go. Of course. Oh, yeah, of course. Sorry. So I, I went and stood where Jackie had told me to go and stand because I was, I was sitting with my mates that day and went, went and stood there when they got the penalty. And then we went up the other end and schooled and there was all of a sudden people piling on top of me and I went the other way back into the stand. Whilst, whilst everyone else was trying to get on the pitch, yeah. I made my way back into the stand and had hugs, hugs with my mates who I hadn't been able to celebrate the goal with. But I was basically standing by the, the corner flag directly opposite. So the same end where the goal was, but the other corner flag. I, I was standing right what there as the ball went in. Yeah. So had an absolutely incredible, incredible yeah. view um, of what happened. And, um, and football's about emotion, right? That was the second most emotional I've ever been at a game of football. The most emotional I've ever been at a game of football was AFC Wimbledon 
versus Luton in the playoff final. I was in there Manchester. in Manchester. Yes, I, that, what an incredible it was a penalty shootout, wasn't it? That Wimbledon one to get. To get we had we've been Wimbledon sponsors since three days after they formed. Yeah, we still are now. I'm I'm part of the family that is AFC Wimbledon, and seeing the work that everybody had put into that club, getting into a league place. The emotion there was the emotion was so good that I missed my train and I had to get a taxi back from Manchester to London because I had to be back in London for the morning. How much did that taxi cost? Four hundred pounds. <laughs> Worth it though, I guess. There was no way that I was going to stop drinking on that <laughs> night, and there were no there were no hotel rooms available, and there were no trains the next morning that could get me down there. There were no hotels because one of the Manchester clubs had a home game the next day, yeah. so it was full. It was full of um, full of tourists basically yeah. um, for that yeah. game, and I didn't fancy kipping on someone's floor, so I just got I just got a cab back because I would have had to get a cab back in the morning anyway. But but yeah, it was just. The the it, it's amazing how emotional you can get at a game of football, but that was that was just a swell of pride um, at that game. Whereas the other games, when Watford have done done really well, like the Liverpool game, yeah, it was great and it was brilliant, and we had a few drinks afterwards, and it was fantastic. But it was only one match. Didn't mean it doesn't mean as much as an end of the season thing that actually has a meaning. Yeah, we should say for people who aren't aware what we're talking about. So Sunday, 12th of May, 2013, Watford v Leicester in the second leg of the Championship playoff final. Leicester had won the first leg 1-0. Watford were 2-1 up in the second leg. They then got, um, Leicester then got a penalty near the end of the game where, let's be honest about this, Anthony Knockhart dived. Uh, If he had scored the penalty, Leicester make it 2-all. I think I've got this right. And then they, they, they then go into the what would have been a 2015 Championship player final to face Crystal Palace. Anti-knockout penalty is saved by Manuel Almunia. 20 seconds later, the ball goes up the other side of the pitch and 20 seconds later, Troy Deeney smashes the ball in to give Watford a 3-1 lead and put them, put them through instead. So the game literally and turned in 20 seconds. But if, even if Leicester hadn't scored that penalty and we hadn't scored, we were still out because of the away goals were away goal, Exactly, yeah. And the other thing about that goal, I mean, it's an incredibly dramatic goal. There's there's so many stories around it. There's obviously the great commentary. Is it? Um, exactly, yeah. Yeah, fantastic commentary. Everything about it's great. But I think one thing that's underplayed about it, I don't know what you think, is how good the goal was. So yeah. Manuel Armunia makes a brilliant double save from Lockhart's penalty. Uh, Ikechi Anya then gets the ball sort of on the halfway line, brilliantly controls it. Uh, drives upfield. He then plays out a pass to Fernando Foriestiri, uh, who then puts in a really good cross to the back post. Jonathan Hogg heads it back, beautifully cushioned header to Dini, and then he comes in and smashes it home. I mean, from start to me, forget the drama and forget what it meant. It was just a brilliant goal, wasn't it? It, it, was, it was a brilliant goal at a brilliant time and is one of those games that, partly because of the commentary, but it's, it's one of those goals that is just going to get shown again yeah. and again and again and again because because of that drama behind it. It's just, it was incredible and, and, and just, yeah, massively emotional. Knockout takes, Almunia saves, knockout follows in, Almunia saves again. Absolutely astonishing. Now here come Watford. Forestieri. Here's Hogg! Deeney! Do not 
scratch your eyes, you are really seeing the most extraordinary finish here. It almost mirrors the final day. With the very last kick of this playoff semi-final, Troy Deeney wins it for Watford and sends them to Wembley. Well, we talked about Troy Deeney being an influence in this game and that is exactly what he has been, but to me, not justice has been done in terms of the penalty. I didn't feel it was a penalty, so knockout, not scoring, I felt was right. But you talk about a team that just doesn't give up, that keeps going, that keeps believing. Almunia, the hero at one end, and within 10 seconds, how quickly the Watford comes straight down the other end. Talk about being positive, about believing in yourselves. They just keep going, they keep the ball alive. And Troy Deeney has covered an awful lot of ground. Jonathan Hogg does quite brilliantly here to knock this back. Composure, you betcha. What a finish this is. And well, it looks like Watford are going to Wembley. All the heartache, all the heartbreak of that final day. It all comes spilling out. Gianfranco's owner slips over as he celebrates. The sheer euphoria pouring out from everyone, managers, players, supporters, as they came on for some slightly preliminary celebrations. The pitch being cleared again now by these stewards, but how about that? How about that? Miles, you've been absolutely brilliant. Uh, I'm going to let you go soon. We've been talking for ages, and uh, well, I, I could sp- speak for hours, but I'm sure you're very busy. Before you go, a uh, couple of things I uh, want to do. Let's. The first of them is your all-time Watford 11. So I always try and get people who come on this podcast to to pick an all-time 11 of the team they support based on the players they've seen during their time following the club. And Mars has been kind enough to, uh, to provide me with his all-time Watford 11. So let's go through this. Yeah. I think the formation's 4-4-2. Is that right? I think I've got that right. It is. It, well, it's 4-4-2 stroke 4-2-4. Straight it's 4-2-4. more 4-2-4. Absolutely. In, in, in honour, of course, of the great... Uh, Graham Taylor. So let's go through this team. Tony Coton in goal, back four from right to left. Nigel Gibbs, Steve Terry, John McClelland and Paul Robinson. Midfield, right to left. Nigel Callahan, Abdullah Decore, Les Taylor and John Barnes. And up front, Troy Deeney and of course, Luther Blissett. Um, and Troy and Luther would be terrible playing in <laughs> playing with each other. It, it would not work as a partnership. Why would but- it work? Because um, Luther always played better when he had a big man, like yeah. a really tall man next to him. And while whilst Troy is really good at winning headers, he's not six foot four. No, he's not. I mean, one thing that stands out for me from that team is you've got five members of the 82-83 squad, which I think just shows you the legacy of that team and how important it is. And I did want to talk about Troy Deeney in the context of this team. He has made you a Watford all-time 11. I think he's been at the club now for, well, certainly over 10 years, maybe over 11. 10 years, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you talked about him earlier. He he can be a divisive figure. I know for a fact Arsenal fans don't like him, but fair to say. I don't get this. I don't get this. I don't see why Arsenal fans dislike a guy who says exactly the same thing that Arsenal fans have said. <laughs> it's, one of things, it's one of those things you're allowed, you're allowed to criticise your own team, but I guess you don't like it and others do. It's probably just that. So, so what, what if, what if uh, the person that's criticising, if their son is a fan of the club? Oh, is Troy Deeney's son an Arsenal fan? I didn't know that. Ah. Ah, loophole. The Deeney so, loophole. So I, I do not understand why Arsenal fans, and I have family members who are Arsenal fans. My, my, niece, um, my niece and my nephews are both Arsenal fans. Uh, they, have, they haven't been brought up well by my brother-in-law. So they're, they're Arsenal fans and they, they have a go at me and Troy. And I just sit there and go, but you've said exactly the same thing to me. They go, yeah, but he's not an Arsenal fan. He's not allowed to. It's like, sorry, what kind of logic is that? It, it's, it's just completely irrational. 
that he says something that is honest and true and they come back and have a go. So now I'm going to get Arsenal fans having a go at me. <laughs> And, and, and probably Arsenal players that I know will have a go at me as well. We'll show you cojones. Um, they've all got more cojones than I do. Um, but yeah, look, Troy, Troy, Troy is there because he he has to be. He's been he's been a club legend. Uh, you know, you talk about the the eighty two eighty three team. There are a couple of players that are in there who are not the best players in their positions who are there, but they're there because they're legends of the club. So someone like Nigel Gibbs or Sir Nigel, as I like to call him, it's ridiculous that he hasn't been knighted. This is somebody who, when he was released from the club, turned up for pre-season trade anyway and was ever-present the next season. <laughs> Hang on, <laughs> what do you mean by that? He's, so he's released and he then turns up for training every training session in the season after he's released? No, not just every training session. He... T- he was released by the club. He turned up for pre-season training and asked if he could carry on training because he didn't have a new club yet and was ever present in the team at right back the whole of the next season. Oh, wow. So the he got back into basically gave him, gave him a new contract. Oh, that's amazing. Yes. What a tale. Wow. Um, he, turned down, he turned down a move to a much bigger club. Nigel Gibbs never scored. And in the days when I was still allowed to bet on football, I would put a couple of quid on Nigel Gibbs to score the first goal. When he actually did it, I'm still convinced to this day that he looked up at me and gave me a thumbs up. And that, that paid for a really nice curry after the game. That, nice that, 66, that 66 to one bet paid for a really, really nice curry. So he's in there because of that. Paul Robinson, it's always a difficult choice between Paul Robinson and Will Frostron. Um, as our as our best ever left back, Kenny Jacket is all, also a good shout for the midfield slot or for the left back slot. But he gets in there because of the way that he used to deal uh, deal with the fans. The centre backs. Anytime someone asks me my best eleven, the centre backs change. So today was Steve Terry's turn. I could have had Steve Sims in there instead. I could have had Craig Cathcart in there. I could have had Christian Cavaselli in there. We've had a, a range. John McLennan would always be in there, but that other centre-back spot changes quite a lot. But the the wingers just pick themselves. I mean, Nigel Callan, it's such a shame that there isn't much TV footage from that era because Nigel Callahan was a fantastic, a fantastic footballer. Quite how he didn't get international recognition, I don't know. Um, he's now a DJ. Um, really? Doesn't quite look the same. He looks more <laughs> like he looks more like a football now than a footballer. <laughs> but, um, or that he did the last time. Did the last time I saw him, John Barnes. Any club that has that's had John Barnes playing for them and doesn't have John Barnes in their best eleven is wrong. He's one of the best footballers that uh, that this country has has ever seen in my opinion, what he could do on the ball was magical. And and Graham actually told me a story about John. And I, I don't know whether this story is true or not, but this is the story that I was told. When John Barnes came on trial at Watford, he played in a reserve game. And from the halfway line, he hit the ball, hit a ball, saw that the keeper was off his line, hit a ball, it hit the crossbar and the, the keeper saved from the rebound. And Graham asked John why he did that. And John, rather than saying, oh, well, you know, I just saw the keeper was off his line. He went, well, it would have been really embarrassing for the keeper if I'd scored the goal. So I made sure that it hit the bar so that he could catch it. Blimey. That's That's incredible. 
Wow. No, no idea if that's no idea if that's a true story of, or it's something that Graham just made up for the after dinner circuit yeah, and yeah. a laugh. But um, but yeah. that's the story that I was told. He was a a special, special, special footballer. And he's got an incredible uh, origin story as well, hasn't he? This he was, isn't it? I think I've got this right. He was playing in a game for Sudbury, and a taxi driver saw him and then recommended him to Watford, and that's how they scouted him. I think I've got that right, haven't I? And Jaden Jaden Merritt, who is someone else who should be in this best eleven, he was playing for Northwood Town against Watford, and that's how he got spotted. And, and we gave him a contract yeah. off the back of that. So, so yeah. yeah. Well, I can tell you, John Barnes, he doesn't just make probably make every Watford all-time 11. He pretty much makes every Liverpool all-time 11 as well. He, he always gets an absolutely, as you say, phenomenal footballer. Uh, Miles, that's brilliant. I'm going to ask you one more question and let you go. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, but one more question for you. Now, it's the, the final question of the podcast. The final question on Series 1, was, um, which I used to ask, was if the club you support, the team support, could give you one thing in the next five years, what would you ask for? But I'm changing it for this series. I'm going to be a bit more nostalgic with the final question. So I'm going to ask you, Miles, if you could go back in time and relive one moment from your time supporting Watford up to now, what would you choose? Relive that moment or yeah. tweak that moment? Oh, that's interesting. OK, go and tweak it. If you could tweak one moment from your, uh, your day supporting Watford, what would it be? It would be the Watford-Leicester game, but I would have been in the stands <laughs> with my mates down by the corner flag. That's a great choice. Brilliant choice. Miles Jacobson, thank you very, very much. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Fall that death down the block.